Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Another week, another slate of Pac-12 football games to talk about. Welcome, everybody, to Believe in the Pac-12. Myself, Jonathan Rifkin, joined with Ryan Leaf, all the way in Raging Cajun country. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm good. A little jet lag. Wisconsin on Wednesday, two-year-old's birthday party yesterday, and now Lafayette, Louisiana today. So it's, uh, it's, it's full swing. College football is in full swing. We'll just leave it. Leave it at that. The multifaceted man, Ryan Leaf, doing his due diligence both as a father and as a uh, sports analyst for ESPN and, of course, on his SiriusXM <laughs> show is where you can hear him. Ryan, I know that this has been the motif of this season. I saw it on Twitter, and that was one of your, your highest uh, interactive tweets this season, the Conference of Cannibalism once again. Stanford beats Washington. I think that's the best place for us to start. Yeah, it's it's just become a a weekly thing, and we have to fully understand that this is just just the the belly of the beast uh, of our conference, right? There's there's no Clemson, there's no Alabama, you know, there's no Ohio State, and that's okay. It makes for very entertaining fun football. It leaves us out of the college football playoff conversation, and everybody weighs the importance of your college football conference to that. And therefore, people just flippantly dismiss the Pac-12 conference. But what happened on Saturday night on the farm in Stanford is exactly the content of football in my conference that I like. I don't want to just blatantly know what's going to play out. I want to watch – um, defenses come in and scheme something differently against a very good quarterback in Jacob Eason. And then I want to see this young uh, quarterback in, in, in Mills step up and play really, really good football. It's, it's what I want to see. I think it's the, the fans enjoy it too. The national narrative gets twisted on it on its end. And, and it is just absolutely cannibalistic in every shape or form, right? You think, Oregon State, they can find a way to get it done somehow, some way at home. No, they got to go on the road to UCLA to do it. Washington beats up on USC the week before at home and goes on the road. They've lost at home to Cal and on the road now already. So what went on that night was was simply just uh, Jacob Eason and that offense coming out and going all the way down the field on David Shaw and that defense and them figuring out something because – what they were able to do defensively from that point on and disrupt um, Chris Peterson's offense was just stellar coaching. And it was in a place where, you know, David Shaw was like, this, this season could, this season hinged on what we do in this game. And they showed up and played their tails off. 
I mean, Stanford dominated. You mentioned the defense, and I think this goes along with that game plan. The ground game, they dominated time of possession, 39 minutes to 21 minutes in favor of Stanford. Their goal is to keep Easton and that Washington offense off the field, and they successfully did it. Not only that, but when Easton and the Washington offense was on the field, Stanford's defense stepped up. And to me, that was the game plan going in, and they executed it perfectly. By the way, Cameron Scarlett, 33 for 151 and a touchdown. What did you see out of him in this game? Because it seemed like that front seven for the Huskies was what was highly touted, not only coming into this game, but this entire season. Yeah, and they just got they got pushed around. They got pushed around by young offensive linemen, offensive linemen that weren't even supposed to be on the field this year, maybe. And, you know, that, that says a lot about the game plan, and it says a lot about Scarlett and his ability to find holes and move forward with positive plays there's something to be said about a running back who's always falling forward never taking negative plays and in, in, in the kind of uh you know emphatic emphasis that goes into that that motivates an offense line to keep going keep going and to have that kind of time of possession difference that just shows that they didn't they didn't wear down they didn't get tired in fact they pushed through late in the football game and just gave gave washington nothing at the end and beat them by a full 10 points when they were 16 and a half point favorites. So Washington drops out of the rankings. We'll get to the rest of the rankings and we'll get to your, your PAC 12 rankings, national rankings, what have you down the road in this podcast, but Washington drops out of the rankings. And I talked about it last week after Cal lost that I thought it was a steep drop from 15 out. Do you think that Washington deserved to be dropped out? Well, You've seen my rankings, so yes, they <laughs> they 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 don't belong uh, in the top twenty-five right now. Uh, they, they haven't shown me anything in in the form of consistency, right? You 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 watch them go out and play one week, and then next week they look completely different. Their identity doesn't exist. You know, ten carries by Newton. Uh, Easton has to throw it thirty-six times, but he only completes sixteen. I mean, uh, this day and age. In terms of completion percentage, that's like almost going over in this day and age. It, it really is. Um, you know, turning the football over. This was the game I think that they thought they had in hand, and they were looking more um, towards the game next week on the road. You know, that's the one that they were looking kind of for as a trap game. But what they didn't realize is the trap game was staring them right back in the face on Saturday night. Now they got to figure out a way to re, you know, rebuild this week and then go down to the desert and play an Arizona team that you know, is on top of the South Division right now at 4-1. and one. And Khalil Tate is playing about as good as he has in his career at the quarterback position. So this, this is going to be a make-or-break situation because then they play Oregon the week later and then Utah the week after that. So Washington is in dire need. They could easily be back in the top 25 if they go on a streak here. But there's going to be a, a gut check and a good look in the mirror, and I'm sure there was with Chris Peterson and that staff with his team on Sunday morning. Washington's offense held to one touchdown in that game in the first quarter. They ended up dropping it 23-13. to You mentioned Arizona beating Colorado 4-1 and and 2-0 and in the Pac-12. I know it's early. I know in for Pac-12 play it's early. But they find themselves the only undefeated conference team in the South ahead of USC. I know they played one more game ahead of Arizona state, ahead of Utah, ahead of Colorado, ahead of UCLA. This was not what I expected from Arizona 
after they lost to Hawaii to open up week zero. But Cleo Tate, like you said, played out of his mind. 31 for 41, 404 yards through the air, three touchdowns. And he's always been a thorn in the side of the Buffaloes. He's 3-0 against them now. What does this do for the dynamic of the South and the Pac-12 as a whole? Well, I, I, I think it just it's early, like you said. And it doesn't tell me too much. It just tells me that the South is going to be chaotic. Unless Utah can firmly establish themselves, and I think they rebounded really well against Washington State uh, a week ago, that that Utah still can be the far and away team, better team in the South. But but what USC has done, what Arizona has done, even what Colorado has done in, in a sense, is they've all put themselves in a position to at least be competition for Utah. And the next three weeks for the Arizona team is what's going to decide their, I guess, relevancy in the Southern, in the South division, right? They host Washington, they go to USC, and then they host Stanford. That for me is going to be a stretch of games where they, they cannot go anything less than two and one during that stretch. If they are, if they're two and one through that stretch and they're six and two uh, going into the the Oregon State game, they're they're going to be able to compete for that South title, which which is something I don't think a lot of people thought. I had them I had them going six and six, get to a bowl game. Uh, we didn't even know if Cleo Tate was going to play in this football game. I will say this: Colorado had every opportunity. It was a great football game, back and forth, back and forth in Boulder. The crowd was wild. It was just a, a beautiful Saturday afternoon for this game to be played. And then late in the football game, Steven Montez, as he's done in the past, had an opportunity on third down um, to give his team a shot. And I think they knew they were going to go for it on fourth down. And in your mindset, you just you you know you're going for it on fourth down. Doesn't mean you need to go for the big play. And he decides to throw a deep takeoff route. And he doesn't even give the guy a chance. He throws it out of bounds by about five yards. And I, I just was I was sitting in a lounge of the airport flying back after calling the Wisconsin game, and I just thought to myself, that's, that's the stuff he's been doing for the last two years. Like, like just the routine things he needs to get done at the end of games, and he can't get it done. He overthrows the next play. Uh, they have to go for it on fourth down. And uh, also – before that fourth down, they have to use a timeout. They had three of them. They would have been able to get the ball back and stop the clock. Instead, they have to burn a timeout and then go for it on fourth down, and they throw incomplete, and that's how they lose the football game at the end against Arizona. So Colorado is, is easily capable of, of being undefeated right now this season, but because of what they've done in clock management and at the quarterback position in those losses to Air Force, and now Arizona, that puts them in a position where they're looking up in the South. You know, there's been a lot of talk about Steven Montez making strides this season, and I think that we've all seen it. His pocket presence is better. His awareness for, for the defensive line, pressuring him is better. But it does seem like his, his ability to manage games later when it's close. I mean, this team, has, in the last four games, they've lost by, by less than a possession. It's insane what they've had to do or how they've had to go about these games. Where do you see Montez fitting in the scheme of Pac-12 quarterbacks? You know, he's middle of the road. He, he has games like the ones we talked about in Air Force, and then he turns around and, and performs as good as anybody in the conference. 
at Arizona State. And then he pretty much goes blow for blow with Khalil Tate in this football game. But then when the when crunch time comes, you know, we don't see the same version of Steven Montez as we saw in Tempe. But we see a guy that, that makes boneheaded mistakes by throwing the ball five yards out of bounds on third down when they needed to get some yards there or put them in a better position if they were going to go for it on fourth down. Those types of things as a quarterback have to be accomplished. And for the remainder of the year, unless they figure that part out in terms of clock management, quarterback play, uh, new coaching staff, things like that, they're going to kind of be bouncing back and forth uh, and being relevant and, and not relevant in the, in the Pac-12 South. Colorado loses 35-30 to to Arizona. Wildcats must feel good. So that's two of the four games. Now, I purposely left this game towards later, the Oregon State-UCLA game. UCLA, what looked like UCLA, they lost 48-31. to Jake Luton looked good. He had five touchdown passes. They couldn't stop the run. Artavis Pierce had 119 yards and a touchdown. They couldn't stop the pass. Isaiah Hodge, uh, Hodgins, who I actually think is phenomenal, and it's unfortunately that he's at Oregon State because they don't get a lot of attention outside of the Pacific Northwest, 10 for 123 and three touchdowns. How much do you want to delve into this game because it was the battle of the bottom teams? No, I, I, I love what Jonathan Smith's doing offensively. And they, they, they did a better job of defense of getting some stops, getting some turnovers. Special teams is better. Jonathan Smith was really inventive on offense. Um, you know, losing him two years ago, by Washington has really limited them offensively. He was so good there, and he is so inventive with what he does. And that used to be Chip Kelly. That's what Chip Kelly was. He invented a new offense, ran it to perfection with recruits that people didn't consider three, four, five-star guys, but guys that fit his, his program, his style. And now his style is used by everybody. So – now those guys are four or five star guys and he's not getting them at UCLA. And in return, he's not performing on the field as a coach either. This was a game that they needed that they couldn't get done. And that after looking at the rest of their schedule, there is a good, a good possibility that this football team goes one and 11. Cause I gave them, San Diego State, and I gave them Oregon State when the season started, and I gave them a game later in the year in the last six games or so of the season where I gave them one where they'd take. And I thought they were a 3-9 team. But now, at the end of it all, if the only win they have is because of a 50-point second half and a just an implosion by the Washington State Cougars, this team could easily be close to being 0-12, which I don't know what you do. You know, Jim Mora, before he left, at least was, you know, they were a bowl team. Chip Kelly comes in, they win three games, and they're on the verge, unless something changes significantly in the last half of the season, of, of being a 1-11 and 11 team. And that's, I, I would have never imagined that as a possibility with Chip Kelly at the helm. You know, can, can you believe he turned down Florida Ugh. to come out to UCLA and that's the way it was going to play out? Wow, it's I will say that it was a real juxtaposition of two coaches, I think, and where they're going. Jonathan Smith building something and doing something so innovative on offense 
and then Chip Kelly, who was the innovative one, going the other way as those two met in the Rose Bowl on Saturday night. I mean, what what about Chip Kelly's scheme isn't working for UCLA, though? Is it that he's so used to this certain type of offense that has now become the norm and he can't innovate something new that works for his program, or is it something else? Well, imagine inventing the wheel, Jonathan, right? And no one else has ever seen it before. And you went out and sold the wheel to everybody, and you were just a superstar. Well, you go away for five years, and you come back. Everybody's, you know, built that wheel now. So now it's your job to go out and build a new wheel. And it's hard to be a genius once. It's almost impossible to be a genius twice. What are you going to do about it, right? And if you don't have the players to fit with what you're doing in a place where it's really difficult to win already – you've just kind of put yourself behind the eight ball and we're kind of seeing what kind of whimpered out in the pros in terms of what Chip Kelly, Chip Kelly was able to do and innovate further. And that's the best way I can probably, you know, articulate what has gone on with Chip Kelly and, and the genius of, of, of what he could do with, with college football. I know we still have about four months until national letter of intent day for high schoolers, but UCLA currently sitting at number 76th nationally uh, for the class of 2020 and 10th in the Pac-12. They have really taken a dive in that regard. Before we get to uh, your experience in uh, the college football playoff mock committee and, and sort of what your takeaways from that and how we can expect, uh, especially with Auburn losing to Florida, I think that really kills Oregon. But before we get to that, Oregon Cal, 17-7. to Oregon didn't score until the third quarter. Herbert throws his first pick of the of the season. They lost um, C.J. Verdell early in the game. Travis Dye stepped up and had a pretty good game out of the backfield. No um, no Garbers, Chase Garbers for Cal. It was Mobs, Modster, the UCLA transfer, who didn't look that bad off the bat. But really, the Cal defense stepped up and gave Oregon fits in that first half. And I think there's some hope there for Cal uh, coming out of that game, even though they lost. Definitely. I mean, we all know what we all know what this defense was capable of. I, it was really surprising to see them kind of, uh, you know, you know, really kind of taken to the mat a week ago against Arizona State, and then we really saw what Justin Wilcox is able is able to do scheme wise. Uh, with that defense and how they played uh, throughout that whole football game, in particular the first half, getting red zone turnovers, allowing the offense to put them in a position to be up 7-0. You, you can't put it on that defense at all. Offensively, it's the same thing. A year ago, they couldn't figure out the quarterback play. Defense would do a great job. Offense would do some things to to help lose the football game, really, and that's that's what happened in the second half. Monster would throw two picks. I really think the touchdown he threw in the first half was really intended for Jeremiah Hawkins, to be honest with you, and Chris Brown just happened to be in the spot and turn around and make a catch. But I, I, I think this game tells me more about Oregon in that that they played a game like, you know, like others have played against Cal Washington in week two and couldn't figure out a way to win it, where Oregon was able to deal with the adversity, overcome it, and still win the football game. And you know when it gets to conference time, all I ever talk about is just just win the game. I don't I don't care what it looks like, how it gets done, when we're in conference play, just win the football game and that's what they did. And they're still struggling a little bit to find their identity. They had all three of their receivers who have been gone 
for the early part of the season, all back. So they're developing their relationship as well. But my biggest takeaway from this game with them was that they won the football game. They were down at half and kept shooting themselves in the foot, but figured out a way to get it done. And I have them at 10 this week. I didn't move them. I think that they're right there. Um, I think they're ahead of undefeated Penn State still in, in terms of, of that for me. And, and I do think that if, regardless of what Auburn did, if, if they were to able to run the table and be 12-1 and as Pac-12 champs, I think they would get an honest-to-God really good look. I think they fall outside the, the four. And, um, and my prediction right now is they'll probably be uh, in the fifth spot when it's all said and done behind um, the other four Power Five conferences that will fill up those four spots. So Oregon beats Cal 17-7. to They remain the only undefeated conference team in the Pac-12 in conference play. They are four and one with that lone season opening loss to Auburn. Let's get to that. Let's get to your your experience down at the the College Football Playoff Committee's mock session. Um, what did you expect going in? What happened, and what did you take away from it? Well, it was really interesting. I uh, um, I didn't expect anything. I just wanted to learn what the procedure was, how they went about it, what they looked at. And so I sat there kind of as a blank canvas and, and let everything kind of come to me. What my takeaway was is that it's a 13-person committee, but really seven people decide who the, the four are, or at least each individual ranking, because I asked the question, you know, what if somebody is vehemently – you know, for a team, can they hold the room hostage like a hung jury? Can they filibuster and say, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with this. Yeah, you, you can. And your voice may be heard, but it's, it's not necessarily calculated because if you got seven individuals who think one way in that room, majority rules, and that's how it goes. Um, and they go really uh, to a lot of analytics. And it almost made me go, well, didn't we use a computer with all the numbers to get these answers? And we're kind of doing the same now, but with subjective humans making the call. It was interesting. All I learned, uh, most importantly, what I learned this trip was uh, it's a really neat um, process, and it's got to be eight teams. Uh, I, for a while, I thought it was, you know, four. It's elite. If not eight, then at least six. There's just got to be more. There's got to be a couple more. And also when they say the four best teams, it's not what they mean. It's They say the four best, but it's also the most deserving. Because in the mock that we did was 2014, Florida State was undefeated, ACC champion, defending national champion. And everybody in that room, and I, I, I believe they had to have been swayed by knowing that they would get roasted by Oregon in the, sam- in the national semifinal. So it made them think a little differently. But everybody was like, I can't believe we're putting Florida State in. They don't belong in. And I was like, here's the part. They, to, to some, they may not be the best team, but you all believe they deserve to be there. So that goes against the idea that the four best are in because if I would have done it the way that if I would have said the four best teams, you know, both probably Baylor and TCU 
I know for a fact TCU should have been in. Ohio State didn't look like the best team going into that football game against Wisconsin. So that's why I think ultimately what's got to come out of all this, and this year may be the true test, especially if there's a ton of one-loss teams in the SEC West where, you know, they beat each other up around the block. Everybody's beat each other once maybe that all those teams would have a, a, a honest to God shot of, of winning the national title if there was a playoff format. And that was my biggest takeaway, I think, from being there. I have two follow-ups for you before we get to Ryan's rankings and, and wrap this thing up. So my first question on the follow-up is how do the committee members, such as Rob Mullins, the chair from Oregon, Gary Barta from Iowa, Frank Beamer from Virginia Tech, I won't go through all of them, Joe Clastiglione, the other notable from Oklahoma. How do these committee members sort of remove themselves from their biases? Did you get a sense of that at all while you were there? Well, they get recused. Um, whenever their team or any affiliation with a team, if a, if a son or a daughter is in the marketing department at a, a, a different college, they, they are recused from deliberating on, on that team and that organization. So I don't know if you can fully do that. I, I knew a year ago that Frank, Frank Beamer's um, status on the committee really influenced, I think, a lot of the people's voting because last year the ACC did not deserve to have that many teams early on in the college football playoff committee's uh, rankings in the top 25. Yes they, yes, they were. That was from his influence, I do believe. His ACC, Virginia Tech, he knows those coaches, he knows those players. And I feel like that was undue representation of a weak conference. But guess what? If they're in the top 25, teams like Clemson or somebody else uh, when they're playing them in conference, the, those are a top 25 win because they're placed in there. So the importance of the committee and what they do from like 10 to 25 is huge because those one through 10 teams or 10 through 20 teams, when they're playing those fellow ranked opponents, getting wins over ranked opponents weighs heavily in the committee's decision-making when it comes down to the, comes down to the final four picks later, in the, later on in the year. My final question for you on this before Ryan's rankings. When you say an eight-team playoff, now I've I've sort of argued for this on a, I guess, a more amateur level um, because I don't have the level of influence or knowledge that you do, but, you know, that it should be sort of like Major League Baseball in terms of you have eight teams, it's the it's the best of the conference, and they sort of figure out the, the dynamic from there. When you say it should be eight teams, what format do you see that being? Well, I, I, right now I'd probably say go to six uh, with the one and two seed with buys. That's the way I'd do it. Um, and I'd also, in my opinion, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go conference champions. Um, I, would just, I would just say that, you know, a representative from all Power Five conferences because, you know, like a year ago, let's say Northwestern beats Ohio State you know, did they, would they deserve to be in as a Big Ten champion? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. So I think that all, pi, all five Power Five conferences would need to be represented. Um, and then, you know, either one at large or three at large is you've got six or eight teams. That's probably the, the way I'd go about it. But I just – my biggest takeaway from it is that, that there was a team capable, I think, of that missed out 
um, were capable of, of being competitive in a playoff uh, system and, and could have come out the end as a national champion that, that didn't even get the opportunity. Interesting stuff from Ryan on his experience down at the mock committee uh, for the college football playoff. Let's get to Ryan's ranking. So the Pac-12 finds themselves with three teams ranked in the AP Top 25. 13th is Oregon. They didn't move. Utah moves up 2-15, to 15, and Arizona State moves up to 18. What are your Ryan's rankings, the Pac-12 power rankings, and uh, some final notes on this? Yeah, my, you know, Washington is vacated, you know, get themselves out. Um, Cal, uh, who I had ranked last week as well, is out, so... My uh, top Pac-12 teams are Oregon at 10, Utah at 14, and Arizona State at 17. Those are where I have my Pac-12 teams. My Pac-12 power ranking set is Oregon at 1, Utah at 2, Arizona State at 3, Arizona at 4. Big jump there. UW falls to 5, USC, Cal, Stanford at 8, Colorado at 9. Washington State at 10, Oregon State at 11, and UCLA once again at the bottom of the barrel um, following that loss in the Rose Bowl against Oregon State. So we'll see where we go from here. But uh, I thought it was just another, you know, wonderful weekend of college football and especially in the Pac-12 conference. Uh, I just – I love not knowing, you know. I just – I blatantly thought Oregon was going to find a way without – the quarterback across from them playing. Instead, the defense shows up and and, and really puts the, the decision in, in, in peril for a long time. And then you watch Stanford come in and be a 16-and-a-half-point home underdog and just absolutely wreck shop and win by 10. So, you know, I'm, I enjoy it. Um, I'm going to continue to rail against people who dismiss the conference as not competitive or or worthy. They are exactly that. They just don't have a standalone. Maybe Oregon can be that team. Maybe if they're 12 and one when it's all said and done, you can't say the conference doesn't have a, a team like that. The fact that they lost to Auburn may be the only thing that's going to weigh them down and not allow them to get to that final four. It's going to be a fascinating week seven following up a really fun week six. Please join us on Thursday for that one. Please rate, review, and subscribe across all listening platforms. For Ryan Leaf, my name is Jonathan Rifkin. A special thanks to the Believe Podcasting Network, LA's number one podcasting network for professionals. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.